Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with candid conversations about cyber and tech-related issues with your host, Kath Nibbs. So welcome to the first episode, and today I'm talking with John Carr. He um, is a child protection expert in the world of online safety, and John and I really have a discussion about um, the child sexual abuse material. We we also talk quite a lot about his blogs because um, I've followed John for quite some time. He spends a lot of time in and around the EU listening to the conversations about the rights of the child, um, how the internet works and the kind of issues that this puts um, children under. If you listen to the introduction of season three before coming on to this episode, you'll know that this episode comes with a caveat. Um, We do discuss uncomfortable material. We talk about things that are... um, They may be particularly difficult for some listeners or viewers, um, so please do take care of yourself. Um, It's a fairly short episode, um, but hopefully this one is going to give you um, a real window into the world in which um, I work, I I research, and conversations that we need to be having going forward. Um, It was an absolute pleasure to talk to John. I know he's a very busy man. and I have left his details in the show notes so that you can uh, follow him and begin to read some of his um, blogs. Um, there are quite a lot of them uh, because he is constantly giving us this information for free. So, you know, please do use it. Um, you may learn a lot more about how the internet works and child safety than you may have initially wanted to. Um, but that's what we're here for, to share that kind of information. So I'll see you next time and take care. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. This week, I'm joined by John Carr. John Carr is a child online safety consultant. And one of the reasons I've come to um, kind of pester John to come on and and have this conversation is because of the topic matter, which I've been creeping towards slowly in terms of um, introducing some of the concepts about why we need to be aware about grooming, why we need to be aware of child sexual abuse, why we need to be aware of um, the adults and cybersecurity issues that exist online. And today I'm going to have a conversation with John, which may be uncomfortable for some of you to listen to. So this is kind of your early caveat to take your time. You might want to press pause and leave the conversation. You might want to um, speak with somebody else about it and have a listen um, before going through this this conversation. So first of all, welcome, John. Hi there. And... Uh, yeah, how did you get into doing what you do and why do you do what you do in terms of the online child safety? Good question. I, I described myself as a recovering lawyer because uh, that was my original sort of academic background, although I was never a practicing lawyer. Um, and I got into the internet and computers very early on uh, in the uh, mid to late 80s. And I started writing a column about the internet aimed at non techie people who were interested in public policy. I started writing that in 1995 and uh, one of my readers worked for a big children's organization and they got in touch with me to say, hey, this new internet thing, it's going to be important for children, isn't it? And I said, well, I, I suppose so. I hadn't really thought about it. And so she said, well, we need to know more about it. Can you come along? We'll pay you 
so she immediately had my attention. Uh, <laughs> hey, you, if you can come and explain to us what it's all about. This was an organization called NCH, uh, National Children's Homes, NCH Action for Children. It's now called yeah. Action for Children. Yeah. Um, and it was supposed to be for two weeks originally, and I was with them for 11 years. So I was teaching them about the techie side and the policy side of the internet. Uh -huh. They were teaching me about child protection issues. And so it was an accident. And my own kids were starting to use the internet about the same time. So really, it was a great kind of uh, coincidence because I was learning how to be a better dad mm -hmm. whilst helping them learn about how to protect children on the internet. So that, that's the story of how I got into it. Ah, okay. So <clears throat> um, not, not that I'm going to ask all of these questions, but one of the things that you, you've been um, kind of writing about recently are um, the way that the internet is actually changing in terms of, um, so I don't want to go acronym silly because that, that does happen quite a lot on these kinds of podcasts. Um, but the way that searches can be done, the way that acronyms can be used to groom children, um, there's also the kind of uh, data protection rights for children that you've been looking at and writing around. Um, but today we're kind of looking at I think one of the reasons we, um, we, we're kind of doing this is the child sexual abuse imagery that appears on the internet known as uh, CSAM, so it's child sexual abuse material, um, which encompasses uh, anything and everything that the Internet Watch Foundation deal with and beyond. Um, so where, where, where can we start on this topic, John? Because it's, it's huge. Um, as I said earlier, I don't think we'll get it covered in, in the time we've got for the podcast. Okay, well, first of all, um, the internet's completely changed the way in which this type of material is produced mm -hmm. and distributed, and the volumes that are now available are mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, they're, yeah. In, they're in the billions. And, you know, the contrast with the pre-internet world is very, very stark. In, before the internet came along, if the police found anybody in possession of child sex abuse material, they called it child pornography in those days, or indecent mm -hmm. of children, um, they would typically have two or three pictures or one video. To find somebody with a hundred images would be unusual and yeah. a thousand almost unheard of. Well, today I'm afraid because of the technology, it's not unusual to find guys in possession of millions of images yeah. on yeah. two or three devices in their home. So the internet certainly changed the, the, the scale at which this material is being distributed and circulated. Um, and it's, it's, a very, very, it's very, very harmful in a number of ways. So the first thing to consider is the position of the child in the image, okay? Mm -hmm. now, any picture of a child being sexually abused that's on the internet is a picture of a child in need of help, okay? So the first and most important thing, really, for internet service providers and the police to do is try and find that child and get them out of whatever situation they got into that led to that image being produced and distributed in the first place. Because whatever the story, it can't be a good one. No, no. Um, <clears throat> so, and, and, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is, for as long as that image continues to circulate, the child depicted in it continues to be at risk of further sexual abuse. And that's in a number of ways. First of all, other people could see the image and recognize the child and use the facts of having that image to blackmail the child, to do other sexual things, 
or give them money or things. It, it, it can work in a number of different ways. Um, <clears throat> and it can, this can have catastrophic um, effects on, on, on the child, I mean, who's already been harmed by virtue of having been abused in order for the image to be made. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a very concrete example of the way in which this can have ongoing harm, cause ongoing harm to a child. So there's a young girl called Amy. It's not her real name, but we'll call her Amy because that's, mm -hmm. that's the name that they used when the case went to court in America. So Amy was raped by her uncle when she was eight years old and the rapes went on for a period of time, but eventually the rape was discovered. <clears throat> the uncle was arrested and I think he's actually still in prison. Yeah. Amy got a great deal of psychotherapeutic uh, help and support and counselling and made as good a recovery as you could have hoped for, for a, for a child who'd been raped by her uncle um, at that tender age. Mm -hmm. What she didn't know at the time was that her uncle had been making videos and pictures of him raping her. And when she was 17, it, uh, she learned for the first time that pictures of her being raped were circulating on the internet, at which point, she basically went into a complete mental collapse, complete kind of breakdown. All of the good progress that she'd been making at school was lost. She didn't go to university. She got into alcohol and drugs and all kinds of things. Every time she went into a shop, for example, and somebody smiled at her, she was thinking, have they seen the video? Yeah. They know, have they recognized me? Anytime, particularly a man was kind to her, or wanted to help her in some way, she was immediately anxious. He's seen the video. He thinks I'm a slut. I mm -hmm. was smiling in the video. Maybe he thinks I was enjoying what was happening to me. So it had a completely catastrophic effect on her self-confidence, on her way of dealing with other people, other relationships, and really with, with the world in general. So that's one reason why allowing these images to continue circulating yeah. on the internet is extremely harmful, harmful for the individual child. And there's a group of um, young women from Canada and North America. They call themselves the Phoenix Eleven, and they include Amy, by the way. She's part of that group, who've come together to speak out in public, uh, to say we've got to get more action to get these images off the internet because they are harming us. Yeah. But they're not just harming the children in the image. Think about it. These images are fueling pedophile networks, they're helping yep. create yep. sustain new pedophile behavior. So even children who've not yet been harmed by a pedophile, even children who've not yet been sexually abused by anybody are at risk by virtue of the fact that these images continue to circulate on the internet, which is why the Phoenix 11 uh, and people like me have been putting a great deal of emphasis on the responsibility of the platforms and the big internet companies to do more to get rid of the images and stop them um, circulating. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I agree with you in terms of um, the, the reasons why. I mean, that that's the reason why I um, came up with the, the theory and the particular phrase of cyber trauma. So um, one of the, the taglines I have is cyber trauma doesn't have an expiry date. And, and for these young ladies, I can see that this is... Um, it's, it's cyclical, but at the time it doesn't have to necessarily be physically cyclical. It can, that can actually happen within them, um, within their psyche. So um, 
I, I think it's really, really important whilst we're, we're having this conversation that this is one of the, the biggest issues for these young people is not only are they the victim in the physical uh, image or, or video, that then continues throughout their lives about will it pop up again, will somebody see it, what will happen if, you know, if another member of my family sees it, what happens if I'm, I become a parent and my children see it. Um, and it, it becomes an ad finitum issue, um, which I don't think many therapists, um, particularly in this country, are prepared for, which is why I'm kind of on this mission at the moment to do what I'm doing. So how would, how would people understand about um, the removal of the images or, or what the, the Phoenix and Eleven and, you know, the IWF and people like yourself are trying to achieve? Because um, I, I could sit and explain it, but it'd be a very boring podcast if I just spoke on every single one, which I tend to do. So I'll just be quiet. Any, any file, any file that can be stored on a computer or exchanged over a computer network is by definition digital. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. And every individual uh, image is, is a, think of it as a file and it has its own unique um, mm -hmm. digital fingerprint. Um, it's a, a digital file is simply a collection of ones and zeros. Yeah that have been configured in a particular way. So each image has its own individual fingerprint. And so there are programs, the most famous of which is called PhotoDNA, yeah. which can recognize the digital uh, fingerprint of, an, of a child sex abuse material uh, image. Um, and what that means is that you can run that program, PhotoDNA, across a very large number of files. So you arrest the guy, he's got 5 million images on his computer right? No human being is going to, be, no ser series of human beings are going to be able to look at each individual five uh, file in that total of five million. And you don't want them to either, because what you're asking them to do is look at a horrendous number of really bad images. But what photo DNA does is it looks at it at a technical level and looks for the pattern, looks for the fingerprints and it can say these are the illegal images and what's good about that apart from avoiding having a human being to look at them it yeah. also means that any images that it doesn't find must be new ones and new a new image means mm -hmm. potentially a new child who's being abused now or has been abused recently and that's a sign for the police to to get on the case and try and find that child and get them out of the bad situation they're in yeah and, that, and that's one of the things that, that can happen in terms of, um, so that the trading uh, is, is what I'm trying not to say, but that's essentially what happens, isn't it? So if there's a new trial, it means that there's been a new file sharing trade go um, uh, occurring. Correct. Yeah. So this is, this is um, I know that, that, that I'm trying to avoid being really scaremongery in terms of talking on here, but I know that the prevalence of these images in terms of the, the volume of them in, on, um, on the internet and the dark web, because um, to be perfectly honest, most people that I speak to seem to think that these images are hidden away. Um, and let's go in, in those air quotes, it's only bad people that go looking for them on the dark web. But actually, lots and lots of these images are shared um, on the internet they can be happened upon very, very easily. I know that children have shared them via Facebook Messenger with each other. Um, so we are talking about something that we need to deal with as quickly as possible. A hundred percent. And it's yeah. true that there's an awful lot of this material on the dark web, but it's also true, as you just said, that there's an awful lot on the open net. So yeah. the fact that it's difficult to deal with it on the dark web 
by the way, not impossible. But the mm -hmm. fact that it's difficult to deal with it on the, in the dark web doesn't mean we've got, uh, we, we can ignore the open web. We can't. And what is absolutely true is that most of the material that ended up on the dark web started off uh, on the open web. So it's really, really essential. Just a couple of points. Um, you mentioned children creating images. A lot of children are doing that now, yeah. um, <clears throat> creating sexualized images of themselves. They don't realize that they're committing a criminal offense uh, when they do it. They think it's cool or they, they think it's what everybody's doing. So if they want to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, it's something that they have to do as well, even though it's getting them into to, to criminal kind of into the criminal area. Now, fortunately, the British police, generally speaking, don't prosecute children for creating uh, child sex abuse material, even though they could, because they recognize that by and large, this is just kids being silly. Um, if there was some aggravating factor, if there was some something very unusual about the circumstances, they might. But I don't know of more than a handful of prosecutions that have taken place for kids doing this kind of uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah. But images which appear to have been created by young people themselves are now a significant percentage of all of the new illegal images that are being found. And the IWF did a study some time ago and they found that the kids who were posting these images to a particular mm -hmm. place on the web didn't realize that 80% of those images are being hijacked and distributed around pedophile networks. Yeah. So it's, it has very, very damaging uh, effects, additional effects for that reason. And just, just to be clear, by the way, these images are used by pedophiles to present to other children to, uh, to suggest that it's normal for adults and children to have sex together. And it's part of the grooming process that, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that we all have heard so much about. Yeah, and, and I think what differentiates it from the, the real world, um, so um, let's, let me try and put this in a way that will be uh, more palatable, but um, more factual as well. So that um, in terms of when I'm working with younger younger children, who have been asked to provide some of these images, um, they, they do talk about what, what happened was the person showed them an image and said, look, this is all I'm asking you to do, yeah. um, and showed an image that wasn't quite um, at, at the nth degree of nakedness, um, and it wasn't long before they were then shown images say, well, actually, this is, this is what I'm really looking for. Um, and I think that study that you're referring to actually highlighted that most of the image, uh, sorry, was it 90% of the images were children 13 and under? Oh, I think yeah. that was that was the stats. Age ranges are very small. Yeah, yeah, low. Yeah, um, which which was quite a sh um, quite a shock, but n not a shock in terms of because I I spend a lot of time um, in this world researching. Um, I do tend to find when I'm talking to people, and I don't know if you actually find this as well, John, that people sit very much um, in in total shock that other human beings can do this, yeah. and yet when you see the figures and the stats and the research this is a much bigger issue than, than most people realise. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just thinking about this. How do, how do we deal with this? I mean, I've got so many questions for you that are far too difficult to answer in one, one session. How do we deal with this as a society? How do we kind of educate? Because at the moment, it seems to not be working. Yeah. Well, the police, the, uh, the chief constable of Norfolk, Simon Bailey, who's the national police lead on on this area of criminal <coughs> behavior he's he says that the police estimate 
suggest that there are over, on any one moment, there are over 100,000 men, so overwhelming, overwhelmingly a male crime, 100,000 men active on the internet who have a sexual interest in children and might be downloading or exchanging child sex abuse material. Now that is a mind-blowingly large number. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to imagine how any of our current social service systems, prison systems, court systems, probation systems could cope with it. So we have to find other ways to deflect these guys and get them away from this type of offending behaviour, which is so harmful for, to children. Now, not not all of those 100,000 men will go on and commit contact offences themselves. Most of them won't, but a significant okay. proportion of them will. And the problem is, at the beginning of the cycle, if you like, the police and we have no way of knowing who is more dangerous than whom. We have to consider them all to be equally dangerous, potentially mm-hmm. to a child. And that is a really, really challenging prospect. Um, yes. Well, I am just going to interject with, unless you believe what was um, out on the internet this week about um, data being collected from Fitbits and um, potential, uh, like, so I use an Aura Ring, and that's apparently one of the technologies that's going to be used to accrue data, which they're hoping is going to predict whether people will have a personality disorder or commit a crime. Not so sure I fully believe it to the to the nth degree um, because so, there's so many flaws with it. But actually, I think that I think what you mentioned earlier in terms of um, photo DNA is actually what we are doing is uh, we are building technology, machine learning technology that's helping us kind of yeah. uh, combat the the content. But what we're not dealing with is the societal issues. We're not really dealing with the the people side of things, are we? The interpersonal. No, and my focus is, I mean, I certainly have a focus on that dimension, but my background is more on the technical side and the uh-huh. policy side about how you get get um, improvements. I mean, artificial intelligence, AI, machine learning systems and so on, without question, have got an important role to play. But there's always going to be a need for for the human element because we've yet to see an, an, an algorithm that works 100% all of the time. It, it, it's, yeah. it's just too much. It's a lovely idea, but it ain't going to work, I'm afraid. So we've always got to have the human element involved. Um, you know, there's some, some of the, sometimes things go wrong, and the only way to resolve what's right and what's wrong is human intervention. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Facebook uh, tell us they've got 30,000 moderators, they've got 30,000 human beings, and... Um, doing it but we don't really know what their job descriptions are how well trained they are where they're working uh, or, 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 or or whatever but it's good to know that they've recognized that you can't just rely on machines to sort these things out yeah uh, well that that quite neatly brings us on to um uh the the topic i mentioned before we started recording and, and facebook and their potential encryption of uh messenger so I noticed that you'd shared that. Was that this morning that you'd shared yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, <laughs> there's a professor, a guy, a guy called Hani Farid. I've never actually met him, although we are actually on a, on a committee together. Um, he's very famous. He developed photo DNA with Microsoft back in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's commenting on the, in the Daily Telegraph uh, yesterday, saying that it was uh, morally bankrupt and extremely irresponsible of Facebook to even think about encrypting Messenger 
their messenger service because it's known that so many children are using messenger that messenger yeah. service and it essentially means that you're putting those children beyond the possibility of help or support or supervision yeah. and making it easy for the bad guys um yes and that's that's similar to um the um how, do, how actually i will let you explain exactly what this is um the ddoh that the, yeah. yeah. So how how actually there are there are tools in existence at the moment that help. I'm kind of thinking the good guys catch the bad guys, but um, there are also ways and means of uh, the bad guys staying out of um, being spotted and found as easily, isn't it? It's um, yeah. Well, the DDLG thing is a good example of that because uh, it, it stands for dominant daddy little girl i mean i'd never heard of this till about two months ago but it, it there is it's essentially a subset of sadomasochistic um behavior um where basically older men encourage younger girls to, to dress up like they were children Mm-hmm. dummies in their mouths and stuff like that and and generally be ordered around in the way that a dominant daddy would and the girls are enticed into doing it by being given rewards and gifts and things of this kind and there was a hell of a lot of the, the images of that kind being circulated and there was one particular guy in Britain who was found to be involved in this and he took taken it to the next and logical step I suppose he arranged to meet the child in real life he lived in Wolverhampton, she lived in Devon, 139 miles uh, trip he made down there. Mm-hmm. He was arrested, he's gone to jail for five years. Uh, and what was good about that case, I suppose, is it gave a sharp focus to this way in which you can you can act in legal ways. So there was nothing illegal about the images themselves that he was making and publishing on Instagram in that case. Yeah. Uh, but it was giving him an entree into vulnerable young girls or girls who wanted attention or something of that kind uh, that led to some very bad or potentially very, very bad outcomes for those young girls. Yeah, and I, I think, um, and this is me speculating at the moment, that one of the, one of the difficulties we've got is where the adult world exists and adults are entitled to have their own likes, dislikes, fetishes um, and kinks, in terms of their own sexual preferences, what does happen is on the back of those kinds of images that might usually be in the pornography world, they do tend to transition over to social media. And then it's this kind of building of the acronyms. And what, what I do notice is that, you know, the way that young people use Instagram and the way that they will use the search facilities and they end up going on a bit like I do with my journals, they go off on a tangent and, and suddenly they find themselves on one of these, um, pages is now these these younger children under the age of 16 I'm talking here for the, the age of consent are beginning to uh, explore a, a sexual world that maybe well not it's not maybe they're not ready for in terms of brain development uh, cognitive development etc etc and then there's this fine line isn't there John of um, as you're saying it's not illegal for adults to want to behave like this but what is illegal is that there's then the transactions that happen between adults and younger people yeah and as you're absolutely right they're just not emotionally intellectually or in any other way ready for that type of behavior uh 
what adults get up to in the privacy of their own homes or but amongst consulting adults is none of my business. I have no interest in that at all. But if you draw children towards it, you've got to realise that you are in very, very dodgy territory in, and in which a child can only end up being harmed. Well, I mean, this kind of brings us full circle, doesn't it? Back to the, the prevalence of adults, if you like, persuading and grooming younger children to produce these images and then, you know, the, the facilitating the meeting of um, the adult with the child and the child sexual abuse because, you know, we are talking about, um, and it does make people's stomach turn, you know, and I am about to say that this does begin with infants all the way through to teenagers. Yes. So there, there is no image that exists that somebody hasn't had a, a fetish, a thought about, and then uh, kind of turned it into a filia and then taken that into a contact and real life act. Yeah, no, it's true. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I'm glad my mum's not around anymore at one level because I'd hate to have to ever describe her what I do or the kind of yeah. conversations that I have. But it's, a, it's some very, very bad people out there. And here's the thing. The internet was never designed with children in mind. Nope. From the very nope. beginning, it was always assumed that everybody who was on the internet using it would be a literate, numerate, highly educated adult, because that's who it was designed for. But the truth is, today, over one in three of all human internet users on the planet are children. In some parts of the world, it's over 50%. And by the way, in those countries where it's over 50%, what you also find at the same time is very high levels of illiteracy or a lack of numeracy amongst the adults. So saying that this is the responsibility of the parents and that it's all down to parents and to supervise their children and keep them safe is simply not tenable. The companies themselves have to step up. This, this, is a, this is a village issue, isn't it? But the village happens to be the entire 8 billion of us that are able, well, I think there's 4 billion that can access the internet. But essentially, it is, it is a problem of society, not just a problem of parenting. Neither is it down to the teachers. And, and, and for me, it's, I, I kind of like the word triangulation that comes from um, working as a therapist, where it is the parent, the teachers and, and the rest of society, whether that be social care or whoever it is. Um, and I, I think that this is, I mean, how do, how do we make this a, a topic that can be brought really to, to people's attention more, more so than it is at the moment? Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. At the moment in Britain, we're very fortunate. Um, it might not seem like that uh, right now, but uh, we're very fortunate with the online harms white paper that the government published a few months ago, uh, because that's proposing for the first time ever in any major liberal democracy to bring about a set of duties and rules which are legally enforceable. Um, and lots of countries are watching to see how it pans out, see how it works here in Britain. But that's the way to go. Some companies do do a lot. Other companies don't do enough some companies do nothing but the problem has been up to now it's all been left to what to this idea of self-regulation in other words that we let the companies themselves sort it out and as we now know they're not sorting it out quickly enough or fast enough fast enough uh i should say um and because mm -hmm. there's never been any legal re requirement for them to do it um, and do you know, John, I am going to, I'm really going to do a metaphor from my world. We can't learn to self-regulate until we've been co-regulated. And I, I'm, I'm going to go back to your, yes, the internet was designed by people who were not self-regulating in terms of thinking of the, the bigger impact. 
um, you know, my, my background is in IT, so I do know kind of the, the personality and, and type of people that I'm talking about because I once was one. Um, and there is something about when it is all very logical based and I, I do think it was designed in terms of, well, this is just going to be file sharing and most of us will behave. We'll all be law abiding citizens. And um, there was a forgetting of uh, the, the depravity of human nature, I suspect. Yeah. Um, one, I remember you know, when Bill Clinton was running to be president, somebody asked him if when he was at Oxford, uh, if he ever inhaled, if he ever smoked marijuana. And he said, yeah, but I never inhaled. Well, I definitely inhaled the intoxicating idea mm -hmm. that was behind the original internet. We all, a lot of, hundreds of thousands of good people around the world did see this new technology as being very exciting, yeah. very promising. It was bound to make the world a better place. But the truth is we now know leaving it to the companies themselves to sort it all out just isn't a good enough way of, of dealing with such important things. It was the same with banking. It was uh -huh. the same with insurance. It was the same with food industry. What yeah. we've realized is without laws and regulations that are uh, enforceable, unfortunately, bad stuff will just keep on happening. Yeah. It's a bit Lord of the Flies, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so use it, yeah, using that, I'm just thinking about, so how, how would... Um, how would you like to see things changing? What what do you see as uh, your job over the next year in terms of? Um, I know you spend a lot of time looking at the the EU, uh, you know, data yeah. um, rights of the child as well as yeah. how we actually look at this kind of stuff. Where where do you see us going? Well, the single most important thing, uh, as far as I'm concerned, for Britain is that we get a new statutory regulator established with legal powers to compel companies uh -huh. to open up the books um, and publish information or provide them with information about what they're actually doing internally to, to address some of these questions. Because we, we get all of these fine statements, we get all of these fine words, but uh -huh. we've got no way at the moment of verifying if any of them are actually true or how well they're working. I mean, I go back to the point I made earlier. Mark Zuckerberg tells us that they employ 30,000 moderators. Well, they could all be moderating pictures of horses, for all I know. We've just no way of knowing, and it's not good enough. Um, yes, I'm inclined to believe that it isn't all of the images. Um, so, what did I write? I think in 20, 2012, when I first started doing um, the angle on, on cyber trauma, um, one of the things I looked at was if, if an image was shared on Facebook and at least one person in the comments condoned it, Mm -hmm. And that image was okay to circulate. Um, images that seem to be taken down mostly seem to be of, of women's nipples. There's, there's always a, a controversy and argument kicking yeah. off about um, women's nipples. But when there were images of um, child abuse, animal abuse, et cetera, et cetera, what, what I was finding was whenever there was a condemning comment, that then made it an okay video to share. But if it was shared with, um, uh, let's say, humiliating um, uh, kind of, you know, this is okay, we're all laughing at this, then that image or that video might be taken down. So I kind of looked and I thought, I wonder if they're doing much of this under free speech and whether we've even developed machine learning, AI and human beings that could even possibly look at that amount of um, imagery that's on there. I'm thinking 30,000 people is certainly not enough to be anywhere near on top of this uh, managing it. 
No, and um, and they've got less than a minute typically to look at an image and make a decision. And they've got so the, the point is we just don't know because they've ne they've refused. It's not that it's not that they they know, but they refuse to tell us. So all we've got is the occasional leak from an ex-employee or yeah. occasional court cases that give you a glimpse. <laughs> That's not a satisfactory basis for making uh, policy decisions about the you know going forward. Which is why the regulator is so important. So yeah. they. To have the legal power to require the companies to show them what they're actually doing, understand the full context of it, and on that basis make rules and regulations which will be up to the job and legally enforceable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you know we're talking child protection here, really, aren't we? Yeah. At, at the nth degree, right down at the very bottom of this. Um, so I think quite often I say to people, we that the internet is an 18 plus world. I would never have allowed my children growing up to go into a nightclub or to a gambling, you know, a casino aged 11. I just wouldn't have done it. So like like your children, my, mine, I've grown up with the internet with um, my boys. And one of the things I did was explore a lot of, well, well, what's happening there? Who's doing that? How do you find that out? Where does that come from? Who's do, um, to the degree that I've probably been um, what they consider a complete pain in the backside um, for the last probably 20, 20 years or something like that. But there is something about the people You're that I talk to. <laughs> well, you wouldn't. Uh, in, in fact, John, one of the things I spend a lot of time doing in um, th uh, therapy practice is sitting with young people going, OK, so if you're on that website, do you do this? Do you do that? Do you do the other? And the parents that I speak with, and this is in this building and the therapists that I'm teaching, have absolutely no idea that this kind of behaviour exists. Yeah. Um, I've frightened a lot of people. Um, I've been told I'm, I'm a bit of a scare, well, not scaremonger, I've, I, uh, I can't remember the word that was used, um, but there was something about, did I have, did I have to bring this world to, to the therapist that I was teaching? And I said, but this is what's going to come into your therapy room. You know, this is, this is exactly what's happening. And if you're aware of what happens on the internet, you can then be prepared to sit with a person, going, for example, Amy, that you talked about earlier, and understanding that just because the perpetrator is arrested and imprisoned doesn't mean that that image doesn't still exist. And it doesn't mean that that image may or may not resurface for the rest of that person's life and beyond. Yeah. And what that will actually do to them as a person yeah. in the world and how they manage their own emotions, psychological distress, their family unit. You know, I, I couldn't imagine having to sit with um, a grandchild and say, oh, by the way, when, you know, when your grandma was nine, there was this image and, you know, you might just see it. Yeah. It, it just beggars belief. No, I say to when I do my talks with teachers and parents groups and social workers, I say, look, if you don't understand how the internet's working and the role that it's playing in young people's lives, you don't understand young people's lives. And if you don't understand young people's lives, you can't be doing your job properly. So it's just, it's part of the modern world. We all wish it were, the world was a better place than it is. Uh -huh. you just need somehow to get to grips with it. Yeah. It's not that difficult. If you, you know, it's not rocket science, a lot of this stuff. I know it sounds complicated, but actually at the bottom it isn't. It's about behavior. It's about having manners and teaching kindness. I mean, it's not as if there's one set of rules of behavior that apply in the real world that are different from the rules that should apply on the, on the internet. You want, to be, you want to teach children to be kind and considerate and tolerant and different, 
in every part of their life, not just in the real world, but online too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's another word that, uh, uh, there's another two words I would throw in there, which are empathic and compassionate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mainly because that's just um, the the um, book chapter I've just finished for somebody. So um, we are we are looking at that's that's hopefully where we will head. I yeah. think if I go back to Lord of the Flies, maybe we are in the chaotic um, motions at the moment, and you know maybe there will be some order that comes out of this. I think so. I'm optimistic. I, yes, yes, me too, because there are a number of people saying, okay, uh, I think we need to sort this out now rather than um, sticking our heads in the sand. And I think this is, what, this is why I've wanted to do this topic and bring it kind of, when I, know, when I know people have been listening to the podcast long enough that I can say, okay, this is one of the issues because um, I do need to go back into the um, children and pornography issue again um, because that seems to have cropped up again uh, syn- synchronistically synchronicity um kind of i've been doing a lot of talks and and writing and teaching on that again lately so mm. it would seem now's the right time to have these conversations definitely is there is there anything else you would want people to know before we kind of uh wrap up no, no, um, we've covered most of the important stuff well done yeah and, and done it tactfully i think as well without without um using massively traumatizing language which is yeah. the thing that i tried to not do <laughs> So, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, John. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast was edited by Rory Kavanagh, an audio enthusiast and music producer.